Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Good morning. If you've been at City Church for any length of time, um, you know that we kind of have a, we'll call it a home-baked version of the Lord's Prayer. And I thought, well, my father's away, where better to start? I also don't want a phone call later from my dad saying, why didn't you do the Lord's Prayer? So to begin this service, would you stand with me and let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. So this then is how you should pray. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I start every sermon at City Church the same way. My name is Peter. It would be weird for me to introduce myself because lots of you have known me since I was a child. And you might think, how rude to assume that our relationship has withered in this way. Um, but it would all be weird for me not to introduce myself because why should you know who I am? My name is Peter. My dad is the pastor of this church. Though to make you feel better, I did go to seminary twice. Um, but I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm kind of on the teaching team to the extent that we have one, but I preach here rarely enough that you easily could not know who I am, especially if you've come more recently. And I also don't live in Charlottesville, and I don't really go to this church. I'm just kidding. Now, I, uh, I don't live in Charlottesville. I live in Asheville, North Carolina, where I teach at a school called Christ School, which is a private boarding school for 300 boys. And, um... The same reason I can be here today is the same reason I teach, which is June, July, and August. And uh, I'm just kidding. I love teaching. But on May 21st, our little dummies, the boys of Christ School, graduated high school, much to my surprise. <laughs> and the way we do it, we've got a chapel in the center, so we do a chapel on graduation morning. And um, the seniors, they have these green jackets that look very um, like Masters Golf Club. So they have these green jackets, and um, so we do a little chapel service, go into the academic building, and then those of us, the faculty, we process out in our robes. It looks very Harry Potter. And then the boys, they come out in their weird green jackets. And then we, you know, the faculty sit here, and they sit there, and we do the whole ceremony. You know, this is a, like there's a talk and a valedictory speaker, and they all walk, and they get their diplomas and stuff. And then to end the, to end the ceremony, there's a moment where they kind of walk back around the stage, and they come down the row of faculty, and they shake our hands or they hug us. And if you've taught there for a long time, which I haven't, but if you've taught there for a while, you might have taught these kids from the time they were in eighth grade all the way through. So you've seen five years of this tadpole turning into a toad, and now you're, you know, sending them off into the world. And it, it can be really moving. It's this kind of, I, don't, I think it's just a recognition that you've taught them basically everything you could, and now they're going to go into the world where it's all kind of more real. And so they come down the road and you shake their hand. And if they're your favorite, which two of them were mine, you know, they lean in, you give them a hug and you say, don't mess this up. <laughs> and so for the last six months at City Church, last year we did the year of the kingdom of God. And, and this is the year of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything we do will be connected in some 
or another way to the Sermon on the Mount. And for the last six, seven months, we've been walking line by line through it. Do you remember that back in January? Like a week on every beatitude or beatitude and a half sort of. And, and, and this week we're doing the last red letters in your Bible of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the end of his teaching near the back end of Matthew chapter seven. And I don't know if you know this, but this is your graduation Sunday. This is when you walk down the line and Jesus shakes your hand. He's told you everything he knows to tell you and then he tells you not to mess it up. And so to end his teaching, this is what Jesus says. Um, Well, actually one more thing I'd like to say. Um, uh, With literary genius, Matthew structures his gospel and we've talked about this a lot to cue you into this idea that Jesus is a new Moses who's starting a new people with a new law. And that's because Jesus' story in Matthew is Moses' story in Exodus. Moses is born under the reign of a mad king and by the desperation of his parents while that king is trying to kill baby boys. He's rescued and he's raised in Egypt and then he takes the, he leads the people of Israel out from Egypt across the Red Sea and they wander in the desert and he gives them the law out there. And then here's Jesus and he's born under the king, uh, reign of the mad king Herod who tries to kill the baby boys and out of the desperation of his parents, he's saved fleeing into Egypt. So he's raised in Egypt and he comes back through the waters of baptism until he wanders in the desert for 40 days at which point he stands up on the mountain to give the sermon on the mount. And that's Matthew's ancient Near Eastern way of telling you that Jesus is a new Moses with a new law for a new people. And if you're gonna be part of that people, this sermon on the mount, this is your constitution. This is your manifesto, this is your Torah, this is your Tanakh. And so, Jesus ends his teaching on the law with, I think, with the passage that requires nearly no interpretation, but I've got 20 minutes left. So this is what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter seven, starting in verse 24, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it didn't fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and the fall of it was great. So short, we might as well do it again. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like, I have struggled with this word as long as I've known I'm doing this sermon. My godfather went to Princeton Seminary, won the Greek award. We went to Starbucks, literally went to Starbucks, not a metaphor, and we chatted about it. And is it, is it, um, it's hard to tell. Is it um, the, the person who does these words of mine, they will be made like a wise man or they will be like a wise man or they'll be compared to a wise man? The best I've got is, it, this is the closest to the real translation I've got. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be comparable to, will be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be comparable to a fool who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house like they always do. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Uh, That's how Jesus ends his sermon. So um, if you're a Bible nerd, 
and you want to go deeper, Frederick Dale Bruner has a commentary on Matthew called The Christ Book. It comes in two volumes. And in the end of his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he does something that I think is pretty helpful. He gives you a list of the six ways Christians have historically understood the Sermon on the Mount. So roll slide. I'm going to give it away now, but the first one is the right one. At least that's what I'm going to argue. So we'll come back to it. I know this is a lot. You don't have to know this. If it goes right over you, this is the planned zone out time for this sermon. You're welcome. So one, first reading is just do it. Don't explain it away. This is the early church's version. The second one was it's just for a few. It's just for the varsity squad. So the JV team shouldn't think they have to do it. This is no, this is no longer official Catholic doctrine, but this was the old Catholic view where the priests go and they do it for real and you just give them some money. The third one is it's just to convict you. It's just to make you feel bad. It's just to let you know how far away you are from what Jesus actually requires of you. And that's to make you feel good about Jesus dying for your sins. This is the old Protestant view. And the fourth one is, well, it's just about your attitude. You don't have to, like, do this stuff. But you should feel like you could do the stuff. You know, you don't have to give to the poor. You just have to be the kind of person that isn't attached to money in your heart. <laughs> yeah, tell that to the poor. Um, this is somewhat the modern Protestant view. The fifth view is, well, it's not for now, but this is what the kingdom of God will be like in its fullness. It's just the trailer. So, so don't worry about it too much now. This is the modern dispensationalist view. And the last one is, well, it's just for the Christians then. It's for people that were under the sound of Jesus' voice. So if you, if you try to live by it, you're being a little anachronistic, don't you think? Can we go back to the earlier slide? Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my best dead friend, once came up with a parable in which he said, once there was a man who said to his son, son, go to bed. And the little boy thought to himself, well, if I'm going to go to bed, I have to be tired. And if I'm going to be tired, I have to tire myself out. So what my dad is really telling me is to go outside and play. <laughs> I think Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount this way because he knows there are endless creative and convincing ways we can think ourselves out of doing what he's asked of us. And I think the early church knows that too. They, they knew, like any good teacher knows, that it's actually by doing the thing that you learn the thing. In, in our modern Western world, if you're going to be smart or you're going to be wise, just give me the information. Like, just tell it to me. And we know we're smart or we're wise because we know the thing. It's in our heads, which is exactly not what Jesus is saying here. If you've been to City Church for the last six months and you have learned the Sermon on the Mount immensely well, you're not wise. You just know some stuff. You're wise if you do it, he says. Jesus here is really, genuinely, unironically encouraging you to do something. What you do makes a difference. Now, I think when we talk about the importance of what we do in church, sort of two anxieties rear their scary little heads. Why do I do that when I drink? One of those anxieties is um, works righteousness, like legalism. And what you hear is someone is telling you you have to earn your salvation. Now, I don't know how much time you spent with St. Paul, Jesus' earliest and probably most influential interpreter. But Paul of Tarsus 
was adamant at letting people know, Jew and Gentile, that you don't earn your salvation. You don't work for it. And so famously, he says in Ephesians 2, in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, we don't have time to do a sermon on salvation. But I think for a lot of people, what they hear is, you're saved by faith, which means... Um, you don't have to do work to get into heaven. But Jesus has a vastly more expansive account of what salvation is. For Jesus, salvation is the kingdom of God coming into the world. And that happens before you're dead and after you're dead. It happens all the time. And so people whose lives are made better now, people who were healed by Jesus, that was salvation. And going to be with him forever, that is also salvation. And Paul is telling you that you don't earn that, you don't get in on that by what you do, it's what God does, what God has done in Jesus and what God is doing in the spirit. What you do does not make the difference of heaven and hell, salvation and damnation, salvation and perishing. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's also not saying what I think is this other anxiety we have of just kind of perfectionism and failure and shame, you know what I mean? I have been really bad at some jobs I've had. I wouldn't want you to think that I'm a demigod who has gone from glory to glory. <laughs> and you know that awful moment when it relies on you and you know you can do it. That's also not the position Jesus is putting you in. Jesus is also not putting you in a position where you've got to do the kingdom. It's all, it's all you. Go out there and get them. If you mess it up, it's just messed up. Jesus does the kingdom. His spirit does the kingdom. We just partner with them. It's not the difference of heaven and hell. It's, it's not the difference of success, shame, and failure. But Jesus is saying your actions matter, and they make a difference, and that difference is the difference of wisdom and foolishness. That's the part that you actually do do. This is the only time in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus uses that word wise, in Greek, it's phronimos. It comes from an old root, which is frain. It's, it's about your mind. Phronimos means thoughtful or reflective, mindful, most literally. And the word for fool, hilariously, is moros, from which we get moron. Um, so you're either phronimos or a moron, according to Jesus. And when Jesus uses this word, what he's doing when he says, well, you'll be like a wise man, He's kind of reaching back into the library of ancient Israel and to their big book, the Tanakh, and he's pulling out just a little snippet of it, these three books that modern biblical scholars call the wisdom literature, unsurprisingly, and they are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And Proverbs is a book, maybe you've read it, because there's 31 chapters, one for every day. The first 10 chapters introduce you to this woman, and her name is Wisdom, Chokmah in Hebrew. And she throws a big party for you and she calls you in off the streets to teach you how to live life. And then she introduces you to like 9,000 basically disorganized pieces of advice. Things like, don't rebuke a fool in his folly. But then we'll also say, do rebuke a fool in his folly. Or, um, this is my favorite, singing songs to a sad heart is like taking off a cloak on a cold day. Boy, howdy if that isn't true, you know? It's all of the, and, and so the big takeaway kind of from Proverbs is the world is basically ordered. Basically, what you put in is what you get out. What you mess up is what gets messed up. You're a good parent, you have good kids. 
And, and traditionally, this, 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 this advice is sort of um, collated by Solomon, King Solomon. And then there's the second book, Ecclesiastes, where by tradition, Solomon names himself Kohelet, which is the word for preacher or teacher. And in this book, Solomon goes, well, yeah, 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 yeah. The world is ordered, but like, who cares? We all die. All of our stuff breaks. You never get the kids you want. I mean, there's like all of this... All this stuff. It's the only book of the Bible that like seriously might suggest alcoholism. <laughs> He's got this whole like, let them drink and forget their misery. I mean, really? Really? It's a deeply depressing book. It's got the same idea. Well, the world is ordered, but who, so what? Really, what difference does it make? And then there's the book of Job. And you might know the story. Job is an ancient Gentile. He's alive before Abraham. And in one day, everything goes wrong. All his kids die. His business disappears and he's, he's stricken with disgusting boils. And, and Job might hear Proverbs and goes, the world is ordered, and Ecclesiastes is going, so what? But Job's in a situation where something reasonlessly awful has happened, and Job is going, the world is ordered? Where are you getting that? All these terrible things have happened to me and happened to Job, and, and it looks like there actually isn't any logic to the world. And, and in in our philosophy, in the philosophy of the Western world, what we're interested in is like information. What is truth? What is beauty? What is goodness? <laughs> <laughs> but ancient philosophy is, is trying to do something else. It's trying to ask the questions that we all ask. So like, does life go a certain way? Or does it not go a certain way? And if it does, does that matter? And if it does matter, is that reliable? Like ancient philosophy takes, in some sense, the unmovingness of truth and the relativity of life and tries to hold them together. I mean, this isn't like a good textbook definition of wisdom, but here's mine. Wisdom is truth applied to life and life applied to truth. It's the thing that never changes and is always reliable, but you've got to somehow get that to go to work and to raise kids and to be part of a family and to be part of a community and all that stuff is messy. It's so messy and wisdom is about learning how to take the truth of God and to live that in the concrete world. If you hear these words and you do them, you'll be like a wise person. Jesus knows that we learn by doing. So like for the last six-ish, seven months, we've been here we come here on Sunday, and like on that pulpit, like this is Jesus' classroom. I mean, Jesus has a lot of classrooms. They mostly meet at 11 on Sunday. <laughs> but this is Jesus' classroom, right? And like him there and his word and the presence of the Spirit has been trying to teach us like how to do this thing. And so he, he tells us all of this stuff, like keep your vows and don't retaliate in anger and don't worry about your life, what you'll eat and what you'll wear. He's given you all this stuff. See the world like the Beatitudes. Do it this way. And here's what's going to happen. Eventually, I will stop talking. And then we'll sing a song. And then you'll say hi to people you know. And you'll avoid the people you don't. And then you will walk through these doors. You will go out. Hello. You will go out into that world. These real doors. Where there are real people that God has really made. And I have now. I'm so sorry to tell you this puts you in a deeply awkward position. You have two options. 
Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, well, they'll be like a wise person. And whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them, well, they'll be like a fool. And all of you have now heard. So now you have a decision to make. Are you gonna go out there and do it? Or is Jesus gonna pity you the fool? This is the question that Jesus sets before. Are we going to be the people that did it? Are we going to be the people that did, this is the, are, just do it. Are we going to be the people that, and if we do it, our house won't fall. So I think mostly when we read this passage and we hear about the house, my first thought at least is that that's my life, that that's my career. You know, if I, if I follow the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, my house won't fall. But in the Torah, in the Tanakh, mostly the house is the house of Israel, and that's the people of Israel, or it's the house of God, and that's the temple. It's not your apartment. It's a community. It's the community where God lives. And the New Testament says this to us over and over again. We are the people of God. We are the temple of God made of living stones. The good news of this is that when we build the house, we don't build it alone. We build it together, and we all live in it. And of course, the house would not fall when the rain comes and the floods rise and the wind beat against the house because we'll have been doing it together. Because we'll be a community that sees the world through the eyes of the Beatitudes. Because we're salt and light. Because we don't think Jesus came to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. Because we don't retaliate against each other in anger. And we don't have to worry that people are gonna retaliate against us in anger. There are people who keep their vows. We don't have to worry that someone's not, we can be reliable for each other, that we're not worried about our life, what we'll eat and what we'll wear, so we can be generous to each other. And we don't have to worry that someone's gonna take when I'm in need, that we can come to each other for what if. Jesus invites all of us as a community to build that house together, to come together under that roof. If you've never been to City Church before, and you're not so sure about the Jesus thing, I am a little sorry that you came here today, to be honest. And if you've been here for a while, well, aren't we all, though, kind of in the same position? Don't you want to live in a world that is like that? A world of unangry, unworried, unsettlingly unanxious, inspiringly generous, reliable people who do life together in a community whose life is the worship to the living God. That's what Jesus invites us to. That's what we can learn. That's the common life we can have with him. But it only works. It only works if you do it. So do it. <laughs>